More than 350,000 of our fellow Americans, men, women, and children, can get a more decent diet with the help of our new food stamp program. In Davie, West Virginia, a young couple with only $100 a month, and they have to feed eight growing boys. They regard the food stamp program as the salvation of their family budget. That was President John F. Kennedy's radio and television report to the American people on the state of the national economy on August 13, 1962. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about how to keep fresh, healthy food on the table for all Americans. And stay tuned after the interview for another edition of Sidelining Science with Shreya Dervasala. Today, millions of Americans will be asking hard questions about food. I don't mean what kind of takeout should we order, or should I pay a little more for the organic broccoli? I mean really hard questions like, is there enough food in the house to last till my next paycheck? Or do I buy groceries or pay the heating bill? If you've ever had to ask questions like these, you've experienced food insecurity. And for too many economically struggling Americans, food insecurity is a constant threat. One federal program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, also known as food stamps, was created to reduce that threat and help ensure that all Americans can afford to put food on the table for their families. SNAP is part of the Farm Bill, a gigantic legislative package that addresses almost every imaginable aspect of our food system, from crop insurance to school lunches. It also happens that the Farm Bill is up for renewal this year, and as we recorded this podcast, Congress was about to kick it into high gear. In debates about Farm Bill policy, SNAP has become a favorite target. Critics claim that the program is wasteful and prone to abuse. But are those charges supported by facts? What does the science say? To answer these and other questions, I sat down with my colleague Sarah Reinhart, food systems and health analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Sarah is a registered dietitian with a master's in public health from the University of Michigan. She previously worked at the United Way for Southeastern Michigan, where she provided technical assistance and targeted support to federal child nutrition plan sponsors and vendors. Before that, she provided nutrition counseling and seminars through the YMCA of Metro Detroit. Sarah helped me understand why many so-called SNAP reforms are solving problems that don't exist, why many food system workers can't afford the food they help to produce, and what a registered dietitian eats for dinner. Hi, Sarah, and thanks for joining me on the Got Science podcast. Thanks for having me, Colleen. So I want to talk to you today about food, healthy food, and one of the programs in the Farm Bill that helps feed millions of families, the SNAP program. But first, can you just give our listeners a very brief description of the Farm Bill? Sure. So the Farm Bill is a big, very, very big piece of omnibus legislation that gets passed every five years or so. And I say, when I say omnibus, that means it contains a lot of different things. Um, So there are 12 different titles, which basically means 12 sections of the Farm Bill, and nutrition is one of them. 
So we'll be zeroing in on SNAP, which is a very large part of the nutrition title and a very large part of the Farm Bill in its entirety. Most people know the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, as food stamps. So can you explain what SNAP is and if there's a difference between SNAP and food stamps? Mm -hmm. So it's essentially a different name for the same program. SNAP is one of the largest components of our federal safety net. It provides monthly benefits to low-income families, and they can use those to buy any type of food at participating retailers. So anywhere from grocery stores to farmer's markets that accept SNAP. And it's true that a lot of people still know the program as the food stamp program. And that dates back to the 60s when Kennedy authorized the first food stamp pilot program. That's what the actual benefits look like. They were little pieces of paper, um, a lot like food rationing stamps that you actually had to tear off and hand to the cashier. So one major thing that's changed since the days of food stamps is the technology. Um, as you probably know, the system is now electronic and people can have their benefits loaded onto an EBT or electronic benefit card that looks just like a credit card. So not only is this an easier way for people to pay, but it also goes a long way in reducing the stigma of the program. So instead of tearing off stamps and handing out to the cashier, you get to go through the line and, and swipe a card like everybody else. And that shame that a lot of people associate with, with getting help getting their groceries from these federal assistance programs, that's actually largely also why the program changed its name to SNAP in 2008. It was to help kind of shake off some of that old stigma around participating in the food stamp program, which the USDA really wanted to discourage. So is SNAP actually, I know it's a large expenditure in terms of the dollar amount, is it a large portion of the farm bill? It is. So SNAP makes up about 80 to 84 percent of the budget. And last farm bill, I believe the total came in around 450 billion for the entire farm bill over five years. So we're talking about a, a good chunk of change. So is that money well spent? Yeah, and that's an interesting question. It's kind of like asking if a, if a hospital bill is money well spent. It's not necessarily a fun thing to spend money on, but a broken arm is a broken arm, and if I value my health, I'm going to write that check. And that's, that's kind of how I look at these programs. Um, would it be great if we had fewer families struggling to make ends meet and the cost of this program were lower? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But when you're talking about a federal assistance program that keeps people out of poverty, helps put food on the table, that money is a no-brainer to me. There's absolutely no reason that in one of the most resource-abundant countries in the world, we should be sitting back while anybody goes without food. And until we start to make some real progress on some of our bigger problems, uh, the real root causes of poverty and hunger, things like income inequality, things like institutional racism, the cost of health care, we need to make sure that that safety net stays in place. So how do we know it's working? Yes, I, I brought evidence. I, I lose <laughs> got, my job if I don't get yeah, the evidence. <laughs> we want the evidence. <laughs> so I mentioned that the poverty does alleviate poverty and food insecurity. In 2014, the program lifted about 4.7 million people out of poverty, including more than 2.1 million children who make up um, about 4 in 10 SNAP users. And it resulted in food insecurity rates about 30% lower or up to 30% lower than you'd expect. Um, and we know that for kids, the health benefits of this program can start in utero. So pregnant women participating in SNAP can reduce their risk of having low birth weight babies by up to 23%. And kids who get SNAP benefits when they're young have lower rates of obesity and metabolic syndrome as they become older. So, and if you look at adults using SNAP, you also tend to see fewer hospitalizations and decreased medical costs as a result. So what, what is metabolic syndrome? Metabolic syndrome is kind of a group of different health conditions that put you at higher risk for diseases. 
Okay, would that be like diabetes? Yeah, yeah. that would be one of the health conditions, yes. Mm -hmm. So we know that some people in Congress are trying to reduce SNAP funding or weaken the program in other ways. What is most worrisome about the threats to SNAP right now? I mean, what happens if they succeed? So one thing that we should really be worrying about, um, and you really, you really do have to pick and choose these days, is that Congress will be asking states to shoulder more of the burden of funding in terms of SNAP. This is something we saw in Trump's budget last year, and we saw it come up again in the budget just a few weeks ago. Um, so they want to cut costs by asking states to contribute more to the program. And the reality is states are already strapped. They won't be able to do it. So fewer people will be able to access the program, and it's going to hit particularly hard in the states that are already under resource. So just to give a sense of the, the magnitude of how big this burden would be, the Center for Budget Policy and Priorities estimates that transferring about a quarter of SNAP costs to states in a state like Texas would be equivalent to what the state pays toward the annual salary of 64,000 teachers. Um, in Pennsylvania, just to give another example, if the state had to pay 25% of its SNAP costs, it would be more than twice what the state spends on community colleges right now. So that's a huge wow. burden that the federal government would be transferring to states. And in addition to burdening the states financially, that would also change fundamentally the structure of SNAP. So right now it's an entitlement program, and that means that the amount of money available corresponds to the need. Um, so if you know, 10 of us in the room need it and 11 of us need it next year, there's money for that extra person. There's money available for people who are eligible. And that's really important, not only because it's, you know, responding to the need, but it's also providing a huge economic stimulus when the economy is weak. So if you're changing the program so that there's no longer money available for everyone, but rather it's dependent on state budgets, you're taking away a really important path to recovery during economic recession. And of course, we can't talk about the threats to SNAP without mentioning the real risk of Congress imposing restrictions on eligibility. One primary vehicle for that would be to increase work requirements and to implement things like drug tests. Both of these things, they're solutions to problems that don't exist. USDA data shows us that most people who can work do work. So more stringent work requirements, they're, they're not a path to self-sufficiency. They're just a shortcut to funding cuts. And drug testing programs, when they've been implemented in similar programs, they've been incredibly costly and they've yielded really low rates of drug abuse. So kind of looking for problems that don't exist with those answers. So I think you just got to some of the most common misconceptions about SNAP. Are there other things that you've encountered out there? Yes, this is a, this is a big pet peeve of mine. Um, there's still somehow, Colleen, after years and years, there's still somehow this lingering Reagan-era rhetoric that I think drives a lot of the misconceptions about SNAP today, um, about so-called inner-city welfare queens that are somehow gaming the system. Um, and even though that rhetoric was, A, incredibly racist, and B, proven over and over again to be, you know, completely non-factual, somehow it's stuck. And we're still fighting the notion that SNAP is a program for the urban poor, and we're still fighting the notion that people are rampantly abusing the program. And the reality is that rates of fraud and abuse are incredibly low in this program, and that SNAP benefits people of every race, every zip code, every political persuasion all across this country. When you, when you look at the demographics, what, what's the balance between rural and inner city? 
are there any surprising results there? So in some senses, it's it tends to be apples and oranges a little bit when you look at urban and rural use of SNAP because the population density is so much higher in urban areas. But what you can do is if you look at household participation rates, so the percent of households in a given area that's, you know, they're using the SNAP program, you actually see that participation rates in rural areas are higher. Those are around 16%. And in more metro areas, urban areas, you see those rates hover around 13%. So a bigger proportion, so to speak, of rural residents are using SNAP. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually some of the research that we've been working on recently is to to be able to highlight that this is a program that's being used really just throughout the country in, in all these different areas and zip codes and in different communities. And so what we've done is we've dug into the data. Um, FRAC, the Food Research and Action Center, published a great map last year of all the different household participation rates by county and, you know, showed this difference between rural and urban. But what we at UCS have done is to dig into that more and really look at what it looks like across all rural counties. And what we find is that among the top 50 counties with the highest percentage of households utilizing SNAP, a full 48 are rural. It's just incredible. It's really staggering to look at. Are there long-term studies that have been done that that show kids are healthier, they get diabetes less? Are there stats like that? We do have data that shows that... um, you know, depending on age, depending on demographic, there are different benefits to, to SNAP use. So for kids, you see it where um, if they receive SNAP benefits in utero, so if their mom is receiving SNAP benefits, they end up less likely to develop metabolic syndrome, which is, um, you know, a, a host of chronic conditions that predispose you more to diseases like type 2 diabetes. You know, kids tend to do better in school. Kids tend to have better health outcomes and lower risk of obesity. And if you look at parents, you you're parents or adults, you tend to see some different statistics, but among adults, you see lower rates of hospitalization, primarily due to kind of a decrease in fluctuation of diabetes symptoms, and you also tend to see some lower health care costs. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. You're listening to the Got Science Podcast. You can find more episodes at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want to find out how the Farm Bill affects everyday Americans, check out our Ask the Scientist column at ucsusa.org slash askthescientist. Now let's get back to our interview. It sounds like SNAP is working, and it's a good program to have, and it should continue, but what would you do to improve it? It's a great question. <laughs> is it up to me? Do I Yes. Do I have if, that power? Now? If you, yes. If I gave you the power <laughs> to improve SNAP, it's, it's a good what day. would you do? Um, so we know that SNAP is good for families. We know it's good for the economy. Um, there's this often quoted statistic that you know says for every dollar in SNAP benefits that are spent, there's an additional dollar eighty that's generated in economic benefit. But we're really just figuring out how to harness that economic benefit and how to make sure that it's getting circulated back into local economies and going into the pockets of our farmers and our food workers. And some of the programs we've been starting to see in the Farm Bill over the last five to 10 years, uh, the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive Programs, or FINI, is a really great example, are figuring out that if you give people the opportunity to spend more of their SNAP dollars at places like farmers markets, it's not only good for their diets, but it's really good for area farmers and food producers too. And this is really important, not just because we need to be you know, growing our rural economies and investing in our communities, 
but because we really need to be taking care of the people that produce our food. It comes as a surprise to a lot of people that a lot of the folks that work along the food chain, from farm workers to truck drivers, can't actually afford a lot of the foods that they're producing um, and have a really hard time feeding their families. We know that they're relying on food stamps at higher rates than the general population, and it's one of the really just unbelievable injustices that you see in the food system, particularly because so many food chain workers are also people of color. So if it's up to me, I'd like to see a lot more funding, a lot more support go to these programs that are helping us reinvest SNAP dollars into our farmers, our food workers, and, and our local and regional economies. So can people use their SNAP money at farmers markets? Yeah, so a lot of farmers markets, this has been a really great thing that's happened over the last decade is that a lot of farmers markets have gotten the equipment that they need and the technology um, to be able to accept SNAP benefits with people's EBT cards, which is a really neat thing. And that effort is really supported, of course, by you know grants and initiatives to get more technology, um, to get greater broadband and rural internet access in place. So. I realize it's probably too early to have any research on that, but is there any way to tell if people are using their SNAP benefits at farmers markets? Sure, sure. The Yeah, the data looks really impressive when you look at the dollars that are being spent at farmers markets. I don't have the dollar amount in front of me, but it's one of those things that's just taken off exponentially in the last five years or so. And programs like the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive Program, or FINI, have been incredibly successful at getting more people into markets and helping them double uh, the value of their, their SNAP dollars there. So they, they get FINI, extra FINI dollars for their SNAP dollars if they are using them at a farmer's market? Yeah, so That's it depends cool. on the program, but Finney funds projects that will generally provide some sort of financial incentive to help people spend more money on produce at farmer's markets. So if I'm you know, a SNAP shopper and I'm going to a local market that participates in you know, the Double Up Food Bucks program, um, that's the name of one that operates or started in southeastern Michigan. Um, if I'm a SNAP user and I take my EBT card and I'm going to spend $5 on, you know, some local lettuce and potatoes. If there's a Double Up Food Bucks program operating there, I can double that amount. So then I have $10 to spend on local produce. So it's really this neat win-win where you're incentivizing healthy food purchases and also making more money available to local farmers. Yeah, it sounds like that will take care of the sort of debate back and forth about whether SNAP dollars should be restricted, like you can't buy soda with them, or putting, you know, some sort of restrictions like that. I don't know, there's always a thin line between, you know, you, you want people to eat healthy food, but you don't want to dictate to them what they can buy with their SNAP dollars. Sure, and incentives are a really important part of that conversation. I, th I think you can't have that conversation without talking about financial incentives and, and programs like uh, Finney. And, it, you know, talking about restrictions and, and how to help people eat healthier diets, it's, it's no secret that most Americans are struggling to achieve a healthy diet. I mean, we know that fewer than one in 10 of us, SNAP users or not, are consuming, you know, the amount of fruits and vegetables that the dietary guidelines tell us to. And, one thing I think we need to be really wary of when we talk about food restrictions um, is the fact that most families on SNAP still won't have enough in their food budget to purchase a healthy diet. And that's whether you take the, the sugar sweetened beverage or the candy bars out or not. There was a really good study out of 
one of our colleagues at UCS and the University of North Carolina that looked at what the actual cost of a healthy diet was according to the dietary guidelines and taking into account all the time it takes to actually prepare that food from scratch. And what they found was that the current benefit levels that SNAP recipients get are just nowhere close to enough. It's, you know, it's one thing to tell people to eat healthy and it's another thing entirely to make sure they actually have the resources and the means to do it. So if we're gonna talk about restricting the foods that people are able to purchase with SNAP benefits, we need to make sure we're also talking about the ways that we can provide enough resources, either through you know, increased benefit levels or incentive programs that would actually help people achieve healthy diets. And if, if we're able to do that, I think that would be a monumental step towards amplifying the health benefits of the program and, and really supporting public health broadly in the U.S. So when you look at the USDA My Plate, which outlines a dinner plate and it shows you the portions of grains, vegetables, meat or protein, and um, fruit that we should eat, the U.S. government is not actually growing what's on that plate. No, there are no My Plate farms, unfortunately. <laughs> but the fruit and vegetables that we grow are a tiny, tiny percentage of what U.S. farmers grow, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, a, a lot of our cropland is dedicated to commodity crops like corn and soy, and same goes for our, our investments um, in agriculture. So where are we supposed to get those fruit and vegetables from? Well, that's a great question. Um, really, it's, it's almost a, a two-way street. I, I hesitate to say this, but just as there isn't quite enough of the right kind of food, so to speak, on the supply side, there isn't necessarily enough demand either. I mean, by and large, when you look at the, the fruits and vegetables that Americans are eating, it tends to be things like lettuce and potatoes and tomatoes. And I'll let you guess how much of that is pizza sauce. <laughs> but so it, it is a little bit of a two-way street. I, I wouldn't necessarily point the finger at, you know, either side, but, but we do have to make a cultural shift in some sense and an educational effort to really bolster that demand for the right kinds of foods in our diet. Mm -hmm. It's more of a systemic problem than anything. You see us investing our, our food dollars in one place and then our agricultural dollars in another place. And you know, sometimes those, those investments are even contradictory. Like the fact that fruits and vegetables are considered specialty crops, um, even though my plate says they should make up half of our plate, right? There's this dissonance there between our agricultural policy and our food policy. And I, I also think we need to be really cognizant of the ways in which, you know, programs outside the Farm Bill and investments outside the Farm Bill are going to end up impacting those same people that are relying on SNAP benefits. So, you know, you can't talk about tax policies, about healthcare policies, and the way that, you know, the current administration is approaching those without starting to see the impacts trickle into the need that you see in SNAP populations. It's just these things are all related and we have to start addressing them. So it sounds such. like there isn't a holistic, the farm bill, there's nobody looking at the complete picture. Right. It's everybody's right. got their bit of it and they're you know, mm -hmm. fighting and struggling to keep their bit of it. Right. But yeah, and the interests are, yeah, have become so polarized because everyone's fighting for that slice of the pie that it becomes mm -hmm. really difficult. As, as well as bipartisanship can work, it does work sometimes in the Farm Bill. I mean, there are 
these two different sides that will come together and mm. and support each other but even still there is no comprehensive holistic perspective on what makes a healthy food system it's very much here's how we talk about nutrition then here's how we talk about agriculture and mm. we don't often have to think about them in the same sphere so what are you having for dinner tonight <laughs> I get asked that a lot I um I think tonight I will have um, a bowl of bibimbap. Oh, are you going to make that? I have all the ingredients wow. in my fridge. It's a, probably a horribly culturally appropriated version of bibimbap. I'm not claiming it's wow, authentic. I'm impressed, but though. That's <laughs> way more ambitious than, than my dinners <laughs> usually are. Wow. I usually go for salad with some kind of protein. It's delightful. But yeah. I'll, I'll be over. I've scrapped the bibimbap. I'm coming over. I'll see you later. Excellent. Well, thanks um, for taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest frustrating news from an administration that is trying its best to pretend that LGBTQ Americans don't exist. Our correspondent, Shreya Dervasala, has the story. quiz. Who said this? Thank you to the LGBT community. I will fight for you while Hillary brings in more people that will threaten your freedoms and beliefs. Of course, that was President Trump exercising his Twitter account in June 2016, which feels like such a long time ago to me. Apparently, it was so long ago, President Trump doesn't remember making that promise to fight for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and queer Americans. Some of his appointees to federal agencies, in fact, seem to be fighting against LGBTQ Americans. I'm not talking about a ban on military service for transgender individuals or anti-marriage equality rhetoric. These are harmful, absolutely. But I'm talking about something more pernicious and subtle. It's an unspoken attitude and practice among certain federal agencies where they seem to think that ignoring the needs of LGBTQ people will make them go away. Let's start with the Department of Health and Human Services, a department tasked with creating policy to benefit all Americans' health and well-being. In order to do so, this department surveys Americans regularly to identify their needs and craft policy to meet those needs. This year, several such surveys have been edited to remove any reference to the sexual orientation of the respondents. That includes a survey given to seniors, which deleted a question about sexuality, and another one given to Americans with disabilities that deleted the same question. The icing on the cake is the department's four-year strategic plan, a roadmap for the years ahead that is required by federal law. The latest draft plan did not mention LGBTQ health issues at all, a departure from previous plans. Two HHS staffers told Politico that Trump appointees ordered the deletion of any reference to LGBTQ health and hopping agencies to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, a survey planned by HUD on an LBGT homelessness project was withdrawn. Well, what's the big deal about surveys and plans? Well, David Stacey, the head of policy for the Human Rights Campaign, said it best in an interview with ABC News. If you deny the problem exists by not having the data, it certainly makes it easier to pursue the policy you prefer without regards to reality. Or take it from Kellen Baker, a Johns Hopkins researcher who used to work with the Department of Health and Human Services. 
A lot of people think data are really boring, but data are fundamental, especially to public health. The only way to have the evidence you need to address disparities is to have data about those disparities. LGBTQ Americans already face disparities in healthcare. Ignoring this fact is going to make these disparities worse. I'm not sure what the Trump administration might claim when confronted with the evidence of this widespread campaign to ignore the health needs and even the existence of LGBTQ Americans. But we know they're sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Sarah Reinhardt. Sidelining Science was brought to you by Shreya Dervasala. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Thanks, and see you next time.